Our scripture is Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Following the reading of scripture, we will have a time of quiet prayer in order for all of us to step out of our busy weeks, fully devote our attention to how Jesus wants to speak to us this morning, to offer our hearts fully to him. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. The word of the Lord. Amen. In July of 1969, we landed men on the moon. Three weeks later, we banded together at Woodstock. Which has had the most lasting influence on our culture? I know this. 2016 Nobel Laureate in Literature Bob Dylan, hippies rule. I've watched Bob Dylan for a lot of years. I'm convinced that Bob Dylan does not know what to do with Jesus Christ. Some of you may recall that for a time in 1979 to 1981, Bob Dylan made a very public profession of faith in Jesus Christ and became a member of a Calvary Chapel church in California. He uh, produced three Christian albums in that three-year span. 1984, he did a feature Rolling Stone article where he said, and I quote, I believe in the book of Revelation. And he predicted that within 200 years, Jesus would return to, quote, set things right. In more recent interviews, Bob Dylan has 
uh, turned more into his Jewish heritage, his Jewish roots, and uh, espoused a kind of Jewish spirituality. But then uh, I checked his website on Friday, the day after he won the Nobel Prize, and I found this song on the front page, Property of Jesus, 1981. Bob Dylan does not know what to do with Jesus Christ. But he's not alone. I don't think most people in a popular culture know what to do with Jesus Christ. Vivi reminded us of this scene in a great movie uh, called Hail Caesar. We're going to show you a clip from it where a uh, movie producer is trying to get a, a movie that mentions Jesus in it out to the masses and, of course, make money. So what he does is he brings a group of religious leaders, and he asks them to describe how Jesus will go over in their faith communities. It's an interesting dialogue. Take a look. Our story is told through the eyes of a Roman tribune, Autolycus Antoninus. Ordinary man, skeptical at first, but who comes to a grudging respect for this swell figure from the East. And Autolycus is played by Baird Whitlock. Oh, my. Well, he is certainly a great talent. Now, Hail Caesar is a prestige picture. Our biggest release of the year, and we're devoting huge resources to its production in order to make it first class in every respect. Gentlemen, given its enormous expense, we don't want to send it to market except in the certainty that it will not offend any reasonable American regardless of faith or creed. Now, that's where you come in. You've read the script. I want to know if the theological elements of the story are up to snuff. I thought the chariot scene was fakey. How is he going to jump from one chariot to the other going full speed? <laughs> Uh-huh. Well, we can look at that. But as for the religious aspect, does the depiction of Christ Jesus cut the mustard? Well, the nature of Christ is not quite as simple as your photoplay would have it. How so, Father? It's not the case simply that Christ is God or God Christ. You could say that again. The Nazarene was not God. He was not not God. He was a man. Part God. No, sir. Rabbi, all of us have a little bit of God in us, don't we? Well, it's the foundation of our belief that Christ is most properly referred to as the Son of God. So God is split? Yes. And no. There is unity in division. And division in unity. I'm not sure I follow, Padre. Young man, you don't follow for a very simple reason. These men are screwballs. God <laughs> has children. What? And a dog? A collie, maybe? God doesn't have children. He's a bachelor and very angry. No, no, he used to be angry. Why, he got over it? You worship the God of another age. Who has no love. Not true. He likes Jews. God loves everyone. God is love. God is who is. This is special. Who isn't who is? But how should God be rendered in a motion picture? God isn't in the motion picture. Then who is Todd Hawkeye? Gentlemen, maybe we're biting off more than we can chew. We don't need to agree on the nature of the deity here. If we could focus on the Christ, whatever his parentage... My question is, is our depiction fair? I have seen worse. Reverend? There's nothing to offend a reasonable man. Father? Well, the motion picture teleplay was uh, respectful and exhibited tastefulness in class. Who made you an expert all of a sudden? And what do you think, Rabbi? Hmm. I have an opinion. Look, he is coming on the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. 
all the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Revelation 1, verse 7. This is the vision of Jesus that defines every Christian church. This is a vision of Jesus about which every human being must decide. The book of Revelation is a vision of Jesus Christ given to the churches. And for the rest of the book of Revelation, as we've been doing with each church, Jesus takes a piece of that opening vision from chapter one and specifically applies it to each of the seven megachurches in Asia. Each a part of the vision for a specific reason in the church. And the result of applying this vision of Jesus to the church would be that their worship and their witness is bolstered. So we come today to Pergamum, the third church, and we're asking the question, what does that opening vision, what part of it does Jesus select for the specific needs that are in Pergamum? And it is a very interesting choice. As you heard when the text was read, Jesus chooses to Pergamum to reveal himself as a sharp, double-edged sword, a symbol for truth. So Pergamum and Waterstone, if you can hear this, here's where we walk today. Jesus defines truth. Truth demands faithfulness all the way down, and faithfulness runs on promises. Let's go to Pergamum, shall we? We go 70 miles north up the coast from where we were last week in Izmir or Smyrna. You can see where Pergamum is, 70 miles north up the coast, 15 miles inward down the Caicos River Valley. There's a mound that kind of explodes out of the ground, 1,300 vertical feet tall. The Pergamum is built on this mound. Pergamum itself, the word means citadel because it overlooks the whole valley. Pergamum was known in the ancient world for two things. First, it was a college town. It was Boulder. It was an intellectual center. It was uh, the place that held the largest library in the known world at the time, 200,000 volumes. It was also the place where books were invented, parchment, writing on sheep and goat skins and, and binded into books, Books began in Pergamum. This was the place where you came to learn, to grow. Every idea, as a college town, every idea was welcome. This was a very pluralistic, sophisticated, urban culture where the only idea that was wrong was an idea that excluded any other idea. All roads lead to enlightenment and all ideas are welcome. There were temples galore on the top of the mound. There was a, temp a famous temple to Zeus, around the base of which were these marble engravings that showed how the Greek gods used human beings to conquer the barbarians. There was a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of pleasure. There was a temple to Asclepius, who was the great healing god, a symbol of a serpent. And, uh, of course, there was a medical school in the university run by a, a renowned doctor named Gaius. So this was 
the intellectual center of Asia in its day, Pergamum. Hold on to that. The second thing that Pergamum was known for was being a Roman city, a city of Roman allegiance. Last week we mentioned that Smyrna was the second city in Asia to build a temple to Caesar. Guess which was first? Pergamum. Pergamum built a temple to Caesar Augustus. And they saw themselves, they called themselves the, te- the, warden, the temple wardens, which means they took care of all the temples to Caesar. So as you can imagine, as with Smyrna, Pergamum was a dangerous place for Christians to live because it was required as a residence to swear allegiance to Caesar, to burn incense to him, to say that Caesar was Lord, the God come down from heaven. As you can imagine, Christians would have trouble pledging allegiance to that. And so, that's that language that you heard read, as with Smyrna last week, that that's Satan's power, trying to shut down the Christian movement, trying through persecution and government force to stop the Christian movement. Satan is not smart to understand that Christian martyrs only fuel the fire. Roman allegiance, a pluralistic culture. Into this culture in Pergamum comes Jesus Christ, raising up his church and reminding them that into this culture comes a sword, a sharp, double-edged sword symbolic of truth and justice, defining what is righteous and reality and holding everyone accountable to that standard, truth, the sword. The, the imagery comes from Isaiah, where it says and it was prophesied 700 years earlier that the servant of the Lord, the servant would come and he'd have a sword coming out of his mouth, which means he would speak the truth the cutting truth, the dividing line truth. He'd speak truth. And then there's this interesting passage in a prophecy in Isaiah 11 where it further unpacks this idea of truth. And Jesus has the sword. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. That's David's lineage. And from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And then it gets interesting here. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, that is, you know, human experience. He will not decide by what he hears with his ears, that is, human opinions. In other words, the truth is outside of any of our philosophies or ideas. It's out there. It's above us. It's beyond us. But with righteousness, his standards, his definition of reality, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, accountability. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. And righteousness will be his belt. And faithfulness, hold on to this last line. We're going to come back to this last line. Picture it, though. Faithfulness, the sash around his waist faithfulness, the sash around his waist. Jesus is the sword. Into this pluralistic culture comes this symbol that the Pergamum church needs to be effective in their culture. And that symbol, John says, is this. It's the sword. It's the truth. You cannot let go of the idea. Well, Jesus said it this way, that I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. There are all other kinds of human philosophies and opinions about what enlightenment and salvation mean. But according to the scriptures, there is only one truth, one way. His name is Jesus. He is not a philosophy. He is a person. And it's relationship with him that is truth. Now, you can imagine how hard that was to say in Pergamum where everything was welcomed and every idea valued. It's hard to say in our culture. We also live in a very pluralistic culture. But John is saying, look, you can't put Jesus up on the shelf with all the other gods and philosophies of our day. And here's why. The claims that Jesus made when he taught and spoke and acted when he was lived with us for three years, or 33 years, those claims, as you understand them, mean that either he was so far above all the other shelved gods that he had to be the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Or, if you don't buy it, so far below the shelves of gods because this man, saying the things he said, C.S. Lewis said it best, was a lunatic on the level of a poached egg. You've got to decide what's true. And if Jesus with truth. Let me, let me give you some, a couple of like throwaway lines that Jesus said that show the astounding nature of his claims. One time in Luke chapter 10, he had sent 70 uh, disciples out and uh, anointed them with the Holy Spirit, showed them what the kingdom of God was like. They had power to heal and cast out demons. And they came back after it was all done, had a, a debrief and said, Jesus, man, it is so awesome. The demons listened to us. And when we said go, they left. And Jesus says, man, that's good. That's really good. I'm glad to hear that. He says, you should have seen it when I threw Satan out of heaven. It was like lightning in the sky. What? What did you say, Jesus? You were there before the physical universe was created, and you had this hand in throwing Satan out of heaven because he thought he was better than God. You were a part of eternity. You were a God who is in control of all things, even the heavenly hosts and the fallen hosts. Who do you think you are, Jesus? You saw lightning in the sky, Satan being thrown down. Wow. Are you saying, Jesus, that you were there before all things were created? Or are you saying that you had a hand in creating all things? Are, are you saying that you are so smart that you can play on the energy matter equation and turn water into wine? You're saying you're so smart that you can take two fish and five loaves of bread and feed a crowd of 20,000. Jesus, are you saying that with the exercise of your vocal cords, you can stop a storm on the sea? Jesus, are you saying, I mean, you laugh at what they give Nobel Prizes out for today. I mean, you're saying that you could raise a 12-year-old girl, her body dead, back to life. And then you could walk out of your own grave under your power. Jesus, who do you think you are? And Jesus says to Pergamum, look who's talking. It's me. Another throwaway line. 
He's in this Olivet Discourse in Matthew 25, one of his last messages that he preached to his disciples. And he's winding it down and he says something like this for his conclusion. Yes, at the very end, you'll know, the Son of Man, he will come on the clouds. And when he comes on the clouds, he will, like a shepherd, gather his sheep to himself on his right hand, and on the left hand, the goats who will be separated from God for all eternity. And you, I mean, put yourself in the audience. What? You're saying that my eternal destiny, at some point in time, I will stand before you, and you, Jesus, will decide my eternal destiny based on what I did with you. That's what you're saying. Do I have that right? You've got to decide what's true. You've got to decide if this Jesus is the one who, in spite of the absolute craziness of our culture and political world right now, if he's the one who's directing even that to this day and that moment when every knee will bow before Jesus Christ. You've got to decide if he's the one who's directing all things such that maybe the most important things that are going on in our world you won't hear on CNN and you won't read about in the Denver Post and you won't learn about in the hallowed halls of Harvard and you won't work on inside the Washington Beltway. Maybe there's a lot more going on and a lot more important things than those. It's called the kingdom of God. You've got to decide what is true. What's it look like if you do decide it's true? <laughs> you know, Jesus saying the things that he said, there were only three responses to him when he was with us, and they're the same three responses that you get to choose. One, you can hear the things he said, the claims he made, the miracles he performed, and you can say, that is absolute foolishness crazy, I don't believe a word of it, and walk away. And many do. Two, you can be intrigued by what he says. And it, you know, he astounded the crowds because he taught as one who had authority. And you can say that, that is authority. And, 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 and it may even be true, and mentally I could, I could go there. But I begin to understand what he really wants from me, and that I have to throw everything down in front of him if he's truly the truth. Uh-uh, there are too many things I like in my life, and I don't want him messing with those, and you can walk away, and many did. And third, you can hear him talk, see him work, and believe in your heart that that is the truth, and then you bow down and bare your neck and say, Jesus, all that I am and all that I have is now in orbit around you. You are the Lord, and my life is yours. That's your third option. In fact, that's the only option, according to Jesus. The only way to respond to his words is extremely. I like how David Platt once put it. He said, this is how it, what it looks like when you respond to Jesus his truth, and his actions. Let's say you're getting together with a friend for lunch. You sit down, get a table, you look at your watch, 10 minutes pass, 
20 minutes passed, still your friend hasn't showed up. 30 minutes passed, still waiting for your friend. Finally, she comes walking in. She says, whoa, man, I'm sorry I'm late, but I had a flat tire on the way here. And uh, I was out changing it, and I accidentally stepped on the road, and, and a Mack truck hit me going 70 miles an hour. But I got back up, and I finished changing the tire, and now I'm here. Uh, let's eat. What would you think? Eh, right? I don't know. Do you believe? I mean, why, why do you pause? Why wouldn't you believe it? Here's why. Because when you get hit by a Mack truck going 70 miles an hour, you look different. <laughs> the only way to respond to Jesus, all that he said and all that he did is extremely. How about you? You get to decide. Jesus defines truth and reality. Are you bought in? What's it look like if you do? Well, Jesus defines truth. Truth demands faithfulness. Jesus goes on now with Pergamum and says, look, that's the sword you're bringing into the culture. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If it gets a hold of you, it looks incredibly deep. And that's my issue with you, Pergamum. Notice in verse 13, though, as often the case, Jesus encourages them. He lives with them. He's the lamp, the, the lampstand. He's walking among the lampstands of the churches. That's the symbol of this, by the way, right? Isn't it cool? The lion and the lamb walking among the lampstands. Uh, Jesus commends them. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. That's the oppression and persecution uh, by the Roman government. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Jesus affirms them because on Sundays they are really strong believers to the point where some of them, like Antipas, we don't know anything about him, but he's a martyr, that he died. Your public faith is very strong, Jesus says, and I commend you for that. But notice his confrontation in verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. In a few moments, I'll unpack the Balaam story and the Nicolaitans, but let me just give a big picture view of what was going on here. While the church at Pergamum on Sundays in their public religious life looked like William Wallace and they were brave hearts, there was stuff going on in their personal lives and their private lives where they were very far from God's ideals. Namely, in these areas of food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. What was going on is that some of the believers in the Pergamum church, under the influence of this group, the Nicolaitans, were still going to the trade guilds and participating in the tailhook Vegas-style parties of the trade guilds so that they would fit in, be accepted, not lose their union membership, and thus be able to keep their jobs. They were participating fully in all the pagan rituals and all of the sexual immorality in these kind of trade guild parties. Some of it was out of fear of losing their job and again in their reputation. Some of it, frankly, was because they like sex. It's just sex. I need 
sex. So they were unwilling to give all of their lives and all of their practices over to the truth. And Jesus reminds them as the truth, partial obedience to me is disobedience to me. Then he tells them this Balaam story. (laughs) You have to go back to Numbers chapter 22 through 25. It's kind of an obscure kind of story, although interestingly, this Balaam story is mentioned six times throughout the entire scripture, six times. It's a major story in the scriptures, most in the context of greed because Balaam was a prophet in Israel who was motivated by money. But in this context, it's about sexual immorality. What had happened was that King Balak of the Moabites, he believed in God. And he knew that if he could get a prophet from Israel to enter the supernatural world and put curses down on Israel, that that would weaken Israel. So Balak offers Balaam a sum of money. Balaam says, okay, I'll do it. Gets up on the hill to give the official prophetic oracle. And when he goes to speak curses on Israel, what happens? He speaks blessings on Israel. All kinds of blessings. So take two. He does it a second time. Gets ready to speak. I'm going to curse Israel. And what comes out? I bless Israel. Take three. I'm going to curse Israel. But what comes out? I bless Israel. Three times on three different occasions, Balaam being paid to curse Israel blesses Israel. (laughs) Balaam says, hold on, this isn't working. We need a different tactic. So what does he do? He goes to Balak, the king of Moab, and says, look, for years and years and years and years, one of the great Achilles heels of the people of God has been sex. So here's what you do. You get all the young virgins of Moab. You round them up. You send them into Israel. And sure enough, over time, the Israelite men will be seduced by these virgins. And they will commit adultery. And to commit physical adulteries, to commit spiritual adultery. And before you know it, they'll be worshiping the gods of Moab. It worked. It worked. That's what he says these Nicolaitans are. We, as best we can tell, scholars think the Nicolaitans were a sex cult. And what they were teaching was that you can still maintain a public witness of faith in Christ, but still pursue all the other kind of sexual pursuits that you want. The point is that Jesus is saying, If you keep this up, Pergamum, and your leadership does not engage this group of Nicolaitans and discipline them, then they are going to go the way of Israel under the ministry of Balaam. So, verse 16, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent. How do we get to the place of repentance? Simply this, well, not simply. I think it's the hardest thing in life. To understand that when Jesus says, I'm the truth, and the truth demands faithfulness, faithfulness goes all the way down. Remember I told you to hold on to that verse in Isaiah 5 about truth, that it's like the sash that holds uh, righteousness and truth around your waist? 
Most commentators are a bit timid there, uh, except for the King James Version, which used to call it the girdle of truth. What's actually in play there is that it's the closest garment to the skin that a soldier would wear. It's the underwear. Jesus says, if you will hear me, I am Lord of your underwear. That is, even your private parts belong to me. And you use your private parts under my truth, my authority. Every part of our lives must be faithful, even and especially our sex lives. For two reasons when it comes to the sex life. First, because God loves sex. He invented it. He wants us using it well for our benefit. But it has to be used according to his user manual. And why did God invent sex? He invented sex to be a pointer to the relationship and the eyeball-to-eyeball intimacy that God wants to have with his people. That's what sex points to. Raw, beautiful, amazing intimacy that God will one day have with us face to face. Now, the only relationship that can carry that incredible power is the marriage relationship. A man and a woman committed to each other lifelong. That's the only relationship that can carry this powerful thing that God invented. And it's used within a marriage to seal up the covenant again and again. And every time a married couple has sex, they say again, I do. And they're working to keep all of their married life pointing to that moment of saying, I do to one another and I do to God. It's the power of sex. And it's the only thing, by the way, that explains the mystery and power of sex in our culture and that why it's always been that way. Sex is so powerful. It's because God invented it to be a reflection of the kind of intimacy he wants to have with us and that's why it belongs in the marriage covenant. But here's another overlooked reason why God gave us sex, not only to seal up marriage covenants, but secondly, to be a witness to the world by how we use it. I came across a great article this week by Wes Hill, New Testament scholar. It's in pathios.com, you can find it. I just, and it's a long quote, but stay with me. It gets to this point beautifully. Women and men alike in the early days of the new Jesus movement gave up sex and marriage in droves. Many, as many historians have noted, it's one of the most extraordinary things about the beginnings of Christianity. In a world where sex was as readily available as the body of the slave in your anteroom or the prostitute in the brothel down the street, a disproportionate number of Jesus worshipers opted for celibacy. As this, and this may be our first clue as to what a Christian spirituality of sex might be. Sex for Christians isn't necessary. It doesn't complete anyone. It isn't God, and it doesn't save. If the early Christians shocked Rome by their refusal to worship Caesar, they were equally shocking in their refusal to worship sex. On closer inspection, though, the fact that the early Christians celebrated virginity wasn't just about being countercultural. They didn't want to stand out from their neighbors just for the sake of standing out. Instead, their view of their bodies and their life goals and their social structures had been upended by Jesus' resurrection. 
If Jesus had somehow overcome the normal course of biological reality, if his cadaver really had been transformed on Easter Sunday into a spiritual, lordly, deathless body, then everything, literally everything, was now different and the old rules about mating and marrying included. Everything the early Christians thought they knew about sex would have to be reimagined in light of one of the of the one great thing they now knew about the world. Death isn't permanent. Whether by giving it up in celibacy or by enjoying it in marriage, Christians want their sex to be a sort of pointer or window into the lavish, rapturous, closer-than-kissing love that God has for humanity, the love that God showed when he gave up his body and his life for us. On the cross. Jesus defines truth. Truth demands faithfulness all the way down. But how do we do it? How do we have that kind of faithfulness that's deep, even over the private and secret parts of our life? Faithfulness runs on promise. Verse 17. In fact, I want you to read this out loud with me. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Faithfulness that deep runs on promises. And there are two promises in the verse. The first is this idea of hidden manna. Hidden means not lost, and we have to find it. It means present, but we can't see it. It's concealed. Man is the idea of God's provision, his promises to take care of us, both now in the wilderness and uh, in the future when we are at the marriage feast of the Lamb, face-to-face fellowship with him forever. That is always in our lives. We just don't always see it. We're always struggling to keep our eyes on the great promises that are ahead of us the hidden manna, but God wants us to hold on to them. It's like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, imagination has not imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Those promises are always in front of us, his provision and the promise that we will live with him forever. But, as C.S. Lewis put it, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink, sex, and ambition. When infinite joy is offered us, we're like a child making mud pies in the slums because we cannot imagine what is offered to us in a holiday at the sea. Our desires are far too small. Or as I saw this lived out in a married couple a few years ago, they wanted to take their three children, elementary school age, to Disney World. And they wanted to drive straight through from Colorado to Florida. But they set up this tactic that they would say, we're going on vacation to Kansas. And when we get to Kansas, we're going to get a hotel. And there's going to be a swimming pool and an ice cream stand. And we're going to go bowling. But the real plan was that when they got to Kansas, it would be around dusk. They'd pull out their Mickey Mouse ears, put them on all the kids and all the family, and say, if you just go to sleep, when you wake up tomorrow, you will be in Disney World. So they're driving along, 
And oh my goodness, they make it through Kansas. Pull out the ears. We're going to Disney World, kids. We're going to stay in the car, but when you wake up, you'll be there. And the kids, oh no, I wanted to go swimming. I wanted an ice cream cone. I wanted to go bowling, Dad. We are far too prone to settle for Kansas when we can wake up in Disney World. Oh my goodness, those are the hidden manna that motivates us to be faithful in every part of our life. And how do we do it? It's because Jesus has given us the white stone. When you were on a jury in Rome, you voted guilty or innocent with a black stone guilty, a white stone innocent. Jesus fell on the sword of truth. He lived the life we should have lived and gave it to us. He died the death we should have died and gave that to us so that he could give us the white stone. That means we get to sit at the table with the Father forever. We get a new name given to him, us by him. And when you gave someone a name, you took on their status and their security. My friends, we are forgiven and we are family because of what Jesus has done for us. And so I come to you now and I ask, is that enough for you? Have you made up your mind about Jesus Christ? Is he the truth? You get to decide right now. All of us, is he the truth? If he is, we're gonna affirm him and our faith in a creed, and then we're gonna sing it loudly to close. This is a time for us to affirm our faith in Jesus Christ. So would you stand? And let us recite out loud together one of the great creeds about Jesus, the Nicene Creed. We believe in God, one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, True God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, global, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead 
and the life of the world to come. Amen.